Would you open your Bibles, please, to Romans chapter number 2. Romans chapter number 2. I'll start with verse number 1. Now, believe me, it's hotter up here than it is out there. Let me quote a little Shakespeare to you. Spring has sprung. Fall has fell. Summer's come. And it's hot as all get out. It hurts me when you think I'm going another direction like that. Now, I'm in a winter suit, a heavy winter suit. This building is doing all it can to be air-conditioned. And scientific experiments show that you exert more energy by fanning than you get cool air by not fanning. So put your stupid fans in your lap and... uh, and uh, if I can, if I can preach up here without fanning in a winter suit, uh, you can sit out there. We're not going to be here very long, but I want to share with you Romans chapter two and verse number one. Therefore, thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest. For wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. For thou that judgest doeth the same things. But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. And thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them which do such things, and doest the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? The next verse is my text. Or despiseth thou the riches of his goodness, and forbearance, and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. That last line is both my text and my title. The goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. I'd like for you not to take notes. I'd like for you to close your Bibles now. And let me talk to you. I won't be long about the subject, the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. Our Heavenly Father, I pray you to help me tonight with clarity of mind, clearness of voice, strength of body, spirit and soul that's healthy and whole. And I pray that you'd speak to me and through me, make me a conduit of the blessings of God to the people, please. In Jesus' name, amen. The goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. Now this does not mean what you normally think it means. I, like you, have both heard and erroneously preached, no doubt, that it means that the goodness of God, like his prosperity, leads to repentance. This does not mean that. It is not saying when it says the goodness of God leadeth to repentance. It is not saying that God gives me health and that leads me to repent. Or God gives me <clears throat> food to eat and clothing to wear 
and that leads me to repent. It is not saying that God has given me America and peace and freedom, and that leads me to repent. It is not saying that God has given me wealth and financial blessing, and that leads me to repent. It is not saying that God has given me a nice house and a good car to drive, and that leads me to repent. It is not saying that God does good deeds for me or gives me good gifts, and that kind of goodness leads me to repentance. Now, this is the normal interpretation of the verse. The truth is that these things that I've just mentioned, health, food, clothing, peace, wealth, house, car, prosperity, does not lead to repentance. It leads from repentance. If you don't believe it, you look at American history. And you'll find in times of depression, America turned to God. In times of prosperity, America turned away from God. So this is not saying that prosperity leads us. Would you put that microphone down, please, for me? So it's not saying that prosperity leads us to repentance. Look at the nations of the world and find the nations that are turning toward God. Look at the nations with a high living standard, and you'll find that those of the nations not turning toward God are turning away from God. You'll find that prosperity leads the nation from God rather than to God, leads the nation from repentance rather than to repentance. Look at your neighborhoods in your town. You'll find that the people go to church according to the poverty of the neighborhood and not the wealth of the neighborhood. You'll find the affluent people go to church less than the poor people, and you'll find also the affluent people that go to church go to more liberal churches than the common man will. And so it is not talking here about the goodness of God, the blessings of God, the prosperity of God, the, the uh, affluency that God gives to us leads us to repentance. Then what is it talking about? What does it mean? Listen very, very carefully. It means when my life meets the perfect life, that leads me to repentance. It's not talking about the goodness of God in prosperity toward me, but the goodness of what God is leads me to repentance. When I come into the presence of God, then every wickedness of my life shows up against the glory of God, and I am led repentance. Somehow we've gotten away from preaching on the greatness of our God. We've gotten away from preaching on the majesty of God, and the power of God, and the glory of God, and the holiness of God, and the righteousness of God. But what God is talking about here is that God's great holiness is that which leads me to repentance. When my badness enters the presence of his goodness, I am trying to repent. When my unrighteousness stands beside his righteousness, I see my need to repent. When I see him as he is next to me as I am, that leads me to repent. When I see his perfection alongside my imperfection, that leads me to repent. When I see his glory alongside my depravity, that leads me to repent. When my spots meet his spotlessness, and I see his perfection compared to my depravity, I say with Isaiah, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. When I behold his goodness, hear me carefully, when I behold his goodness, and every wickedness of my life shows up against his glory, my shame leads me to repentance. God is saying here, not that because he gives me a full plate, 
and a full stomach and a full house of furniture, a nice house surrounding the furniture, that that causes me to come closer to God. No, it says, when my weakness comes before his strength, when my littleness comes before his bigness, when my shame comes before his glory, and I compare my badness with his goodness, that is what leads me to repentance. And that's one reason why our fundamental churches need to get back to preaching on the majesty and holiness and righteousness and the greatness of our God. Oh, Lord, my God, when I in awesome wonder. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth, who has set thy glory above the heavens. Thou the mouths of babes and sucklings, if thou art in strength, uh, that, that thou might still the enemy of the avenger. When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy hands, the moon of the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou mind the of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? I'm trying to say, as, the, as Paul is saying here, we need to show people the greatness of our wonderful God in comparison to our sin, and that comparison leads us to repentance. It is Isaiah saying, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. His train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face. With twain he covered his feet. And with twain he did fly. One cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. It was then when Isaiah had saw, seen the Lord high and holy and lifted up, and the seraphim with their wings covering their face, their feet, and, uh, and, and their eyes. It was then that Isaiah said, Woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. Why? For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphims took his tongs from the altar, and removed a live coal from the altar. Don't miss this. And laid it upon Isaiah's lips and said, Thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin is purged. The sin was purged when the glory of God was revealed. When Isaiah saw himself, and saw himself compared to a holy and righteous God, it was then that his sin was purged. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the goodness of God leading us to repentance. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the glory of God leading us to repentance. That is the holiness of God leading us to repentance. The righteousness of God leading us to repentance. The magnificence of God leading us to repentance. The omnipotence of God leading us to repentance. The omniscience of God leading us to repentance. The omnipresence of God leading us to repentance. And the majesty of our God leading us to repentance. Gentlemen, go home and preach on the majesty of God for a while. Go preach on the greatness of God, the power of God, the majesty, the glory, and the righteousness, and the holiness of our great God. Hey, we serve a wonderful God tonight. When we see his power beside our weakness, his deity beside our humanity, his omniscience beside our ignorance, his omnipresence beside our confinement, his omnipotence beside our frailty, and his greatness beside our littleness, then we say, woe is me. And we need to get back to old-fashioned kneeling at the altar, old-fashioned confession of sin, old-fashioned turning from ungodliness, old-fashioned conviction. And we're not going to have it till we bring people in the presence of a holy and righteous and, and, and holy God. Our God is not just a buddy-buddy God. I'm sick of that kind of Christianity. 
Our God is not the old man upstairs. Our God is not the silly God of the contemporary worshipers. Our God is not the fat and overweight benefactor of the charismatics. He is King of Kings. He is Lord of Lords. He is Creator of the universe. He is the sustainer of all life. He is the Lord of glory. He is the great I Am. He is the High and Holy One. He is the God of hosts. He is the true and the living God. Perhaps then, we should preach more of His holiness, His justice, His righteousness, His majesty, His power, His judgments, His goodness, and His greatness. Show men as they are, and God as He is. And that, my beloved friends, is the goodness of God leading us to repentance. Perhaps as we preach against sin, and we should, I wouldn't give you a dime, you little pussyfooters that don't, don't preach against sin. I mean, cry out and spare not to show the world how wicked sin is. But as we do, perhaps we should add to that the contrast, contrast of the holiness of God. It is then, and only then, that men will come to repentance. Repentance is not some little silly, I'm sorry. Repentance is not simply a fear of God. Repentance is not a monk fasting and afflicting his body in a monastery. Repentance is not remorse because of sin's consequences. Repentance is not, is not uh, penance performed before the Pope as you kiss his toe. And I wish I had one shot to amputate his toe. Repentance is not being sorry for what I've done wrong. It is not confessing one's sins to a priest. It is not just conviction of sin. It is not the signing of a pledge of abstinence. Repentance is that thing when you come before God and see yourself as you are and see Him as He is and say with Isaiah, Woe is me, for I am unclean. Perhaps then, not only should we preach about the holiness and righteousness of God, but then we ought to sing a little less, let's have a little talk with Jesus. I don't like that song. Let's have an all-night talk with Jesus. I like that better. Perhaps we could sing, we should sing fewer of the modern ditties and sing more, How great thou art. Our great is thy faithfulness. Our majestic sweetness sits enthroned upon the Savior's brow. Or yesterday, today, forever, Jesus is the same. All may change, but Jesus never. Glory to his name. Perhaps you ought to sing more, lead on, O King Eternal. Or all hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall, bring forth the royal diadem, and crown him Lord of all. Ladies and gentlemen, we need to get back to preaching a great God, and singing about a great God, and exalting a great God, and exalting his power, his majesty, his omnipotence, his glory, and his magnificence. Perhaps you ought to sing more, come thy fount of every blessing. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, a mighty fortress is our God, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. There is a fountain filled with blood. You hear me, and you hear me well tonight. You hear me, and you hear me well. Not one person will go to heaven who has not realized that he is a sinner, and not one person will realize he's a sinner till he compares himself with the perfection of Almighty God. No one will realize he's a sinner until he comes in the presence of God. Be careful, soul winners. Be careful, soul winners. Be sure when you present the plan, you don't just say, let Jesus come in your heart. 
you be dead sure nobody will ever walk the golden streets of heaven. Nobody will ever enter the pearly gates. Nobody will ever live forever in the land that is fairer than day unless he knows he is a sinner. Put it down. Put it down. To show men that they're sinners and show men the condemnation of sin and the price on sin. And then as they see they, uh, their unworthiness and their sinfulness, point them to his sinlessness. Now then, how can we bring imperfect man face to face with a perfect God? How can we lead men to the goodness of God and show them the goodness of God? How can we, being imperfect, bring man face to face with a perfect God? Number one, we bring man in the presence of a perfect book. A perfect book. I hold that perfect book in my hand. It is not the NIV. It is not the RSV. It is not the ASV. It is not the new ASV. It is not the uh, New King James. It is not the New Schofield. It is not the Reader's Digest Condensed Version. It is not Moffitt's Translation. It is not Good Speed. It's not the Amplified, but the only true and living Bible, the preserved King James Bible. Now you listen to me. You folks that don't have a King James Bible tonight, trade, it, trade the Bible you got for your songbook. The songbook's more inspired than your Bible. You say, I don't like your preaching. I don't like your Bible either. I'm sick and tired of, of Baptists thinking they're more intellectual if they have an NIV. Now you listen to me. It's very strange. It's the smart people that think we need a Bible because we can't understand what we have now. Bless God, we, we can't understand it because the one who wrote this Bible lives right in here. Everything that God has ever done, He's done by His Word. Young men, young preachers, if you think you're going to go out and build a great church with a little humor, you've got another thing coming. If you think you're going to go out with a little charismatic personality and build a great church, you've got another thing coming. Everything that God has ever done, everything that God does today, everything that God has ever done and ever will do is done by the wonderful words of Almighty God. Genesis 1-3, and God said, that to be light, the sun that shines by day and the moon that, ra that rains by night over God's dark kingdom, they're placed there by the word of God. In Genesis 1-5, God said, let there be a firmament. In Genesis 1-9, God said, let the waters above be gathered from the waters beneath. In Genesis 1-11, let the earth bring forth grass. In Genesis 1.14, let there be lights. In Genesis 1.20, God said that every living creature bring fowl and fish of the sea. In Genesis 1.24, and God said that to the cattle, every living thing that creepeth on the earth. In Genesis 1.26, and God said, let us make man. You listen to me. You hear me, young smart addict. You hear me, young philosopher. You hear me, young psychologist. You hear me, young charming prince. You hear me, young uh, young preacher that thinks because you've got a good personality and a sense of humor, you can build a church. You hear me, and you hear me well. You'll fall flat on your cocky face unless you build your church around that book. 
This church doesn't stand here tonight because this preacher's got a little sense of humor. It doesn't stand here because I holler and kick over microphones. It stands here because for 40 years and six months, this old man has gone into this book, and this church is built on God's holy, never-dying, unchanging word. The sun was made by his word. The moon was made by his word. The galaxies were made by his word. The earth was made by his word. The stars were made by his word. The flowers were made by his word. Vegetation was made by his word. The fish of the sea were made by his word. The birds of the air were made by his word. The cattle of the field were made by his word. The flowers of the field were made by his word. The clouds of the heavens were made by his word. The seas were made by his word. The mountains were made by his word. The valleys were made by his word. And the trees were made by his word. And great churches and great ministers and great works for God are built on the eternal word of God. If we are going to bring man in the presence of a holy God and show him his sinfulness compared to God's perfection, we must bring him in the presence of a perfect book. And Satan tempted Jesus on the Mount of Temptation. Even the Son of God replied, it is written. He came the second time with the second temptation. Jesus responded, it is written. He came the third time, the third temptation, and Jesus responded, it is written. I reckon if the Son of God needed the Word of God to resist temptation, I have a sneaking suspicion, you better get in this book and live in this book. Jesus puts down the Antichrist. He'll do it by his word. Ezekiel 38, Ezekiel 39. You have the story of Russia coming down upon Palestine. Turkey joins her. Persia joins her. First portion of Germany, no doubt, joins her. Coming down in the end time, you have Soviet Russia, the Northern Confederacy, coming onto the Palestine. But over here from the West, United States, United Nations, revived Roman Empire, no doubt, of the European common market, if you please, says to Russia, are you coming to take the spoil? Are you coming to take the riches at the bottom of the Dead Sea? Are you coming to take the wealth of Palestine? We'll not let you do it. Enter the United States. Enter the Western Confederacy. And we'll fight against Russia on the mountains of Israel. But all of a sudden, from the east, there comes Japan. And there comes China to join Russia and the Northern Confederacy. And the, the Euphrates River is dried for the armies of China and Japan to march over. And now you have the great battle of all the ages, the great war of wars. You have it being waged. The Western powers, the United States and the Western powers, versus the east, Japan and China, the north, Russia, Libya, Turkey, and other countries fighting in a great war. And the battle is raging. The Antichrist comes not from the other side, but from our side. His name is Hillary Clinton. I used to believe in an Antichrist. I believe now in an Antichristus. But the Western powers win the battle. And this man of sin has conquered the whole world. He stands on Mount Megiddo and looks toward the south and says, I've conquered the south. He looks toward the east and says, I've conquered the east. He looks toward the west and says, I've conquered the west. He looks toward the north and says, I've conquered the north. But there's one place he forgets to look. Oh! 
and from the clouds of glory there comes the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. There comes the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. There comes the mighty God, the everlasting Father. There comes wonderful Counselor, Prince of Peace. There comes the way, the truth, the life. There comes the Good Shepherd. There comes the door. There comes Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He puts down the Antichrist. Not with weapons of warfare. Not with, with bombs dropping from flying birds. Not with guns made for man to shoot bullets. Not with tanks. How does Jesus win the war of the Antichrist? The Bible says he shall destroy him by the spirit of his mouth and the brightness of his coming. Ladies and gentlemen, the battle of Armageddon will be fought and won with that book right there. So, if we bring man the presence of a perfect God, we must bring man in the presence of a perfect book. Number two, if we bring man sinful before the sinlessness of God, weak man before omnipotence, ignorant man before omniscience, confined man before omnipresence, if we bring man the presence of God, not only must we bring man in the presence of a perfect book, but hallelujah, we've got to bring him in the presence of a perfect Savior. Not one who was just a good man, not one who was born of an illegitimate child of a blonde German soldier by a Jewish maid, but the very virgin-born, pre-existent Son of God himself. Let's talk about Jesus. The King of Kings is He. The Lord of Lords supreme through all eternity. The great I Am. The way, the truth, the life, the door. Let's talk about Jesus more and more. We must present Him as the promised seed of Genesis. We must present Him as the Passover Lamb of Exodus. As the scapegoat of Leviticus. As the brazen serpent of Numbers. We must present him as the lawgiver of Deuteronomy, as the prophet, priest, and king of Joshua, as the judge of all the universe of judges. We must present him as the kinsman redeemer in Ruth, as the great anointer of kings in Samuel, as the king of kings and kings, as the great historian in Chronicles, as the rebuilder of the temple of Ezra, and the rebuilder of the wall of Nehemiah, and the sage of Israel of Esther, and a friend that sticketh closer than a brother of Job, and the song of the ages of the Psalms, and the truth of the Proverbs, and the great preacher of Ecclesiastes, and Isaiah, the wonderful counselor of mighty God, everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace, in Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, in Lamentation, the street preacher, in Ezekiel, the rebuilder of the house of the temple of God, in Hosea, the spurned but forgiving lover. In the minor prophets, the one coming in Bethlehem of Judah. In Matthew, the king of kings. In Mark, the suffering servant. In Luke, the son of man. In John, the son of God. In Acts, the power of the church. In Romans, the dynamite of the gospel. In Corinthians, restore the carnal nature. In Galatians, the rent veil. In Ephesians, our sufficiency. In, in, in Philippians, our, our sustainer. And in Colossians, uh, the, the shadow that is to come. In Thessalonians, our coming king. In Timothy, our great appearing God. In Titus, our blessed hope. In Philemon, the forgiver of wayward slaves. In Hebrews, the best of all. In James, the fulfiller of the law. In Peter, the rock of ages cleft for me. In John, the assurance of salvation. In Jude, the one who is able to keep us from falling. And present us all this before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. 
in Revelation, the one coming on a white horse. When Jesus shall reign, where the sun does his successive journeys run, his kingdom shall spread from shore to shore, the moon shall wax and wane no more. Ladies and gentlemen, what our country needs is to see the holiness of Almighty God. Bring man and show him the goodness of God, for it is the goodness of God that will bring this nation to its knees. And once we have preached against sin strong enough, and for his holiness strong enough, man shall see himself in the presence of God, and the contrast between the two shall lead man to repentance. Not only shall we bring man in the presence of a perfect book, but we must bring man in the presence of a holy Savior, but also in the presence of a holy God. Let us show the awfulness of sin. Let us pound our fist, raise our horses, stomp the floor, beat the pulpit, cry aloud, wave our hands, and tell of the awfulness of sin and the depravity of man. Then let us take the praise and condemn men to the one who is the high and holy one, the righteous one, the just one, the omnipotent one, the omnipresent one, the omniscient one, the perfect one, the flawless one, the one on the throne, the one high and holy and lifted up, the one whose train filled the temple, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of glory, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the creator of the universe, who sitteth in the heavens. And ladies and gentlemen, we have painted sin as ugly as it is, and man as depraved as he is, and salvation as real as it is, and hell as hot as it is, and heaven as wonderful as it is, and the Bible as perfect as it is, and Christ as sinless as he is, and God as great as he is, then will our life meet the perfect life, and we shall see ourselves next to him, and then, and only then, will the goodness of God lead us through heaven.